Welcome to the Jesus Image Podcast. It's so fun to be here. My goodness, so fun to be in this building. My goodness, I love this so much. I love this ministry and this couple, this family uh, means so much to me. I just, it's just, uh, they are impacting my life uh, deeply as I know they are yours. And it's fun to be here on Pastor Appreciation Sunday. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Jesus knew. But uh, I'm, I'm so thankful. I really am uh, thankful to be here to, just to be, to witness what God is doing here is really extraordinary. And uh, it's only going to increase. You know, there, there are, the, in fact, I think, I think I stated this several years ago when I was here, I could, I could see the seeds of a new Jesus people movement in, in the house. I had forgotten that until this moment. I could see the seeds of a new Jesus people movement here in this, in this ministry, in this house. Uh, specifically uh, as people, not the building, uh, although that doesn't hurt. Uh, what God's done here in the past is, is quite amazing. But uh, anyway, I can, I, can, I can feel it. I can feel the, the presence of seed that is sprouting and about to have a full, full impact. And, uh, and the, the most wonderful part of it all is none of us will be able to take credit for it. Yeah. We, we all are both participants and observers. Observers of what God started, what he's carrying on, and participants in the fact that we get to hoist our sail and just be moved, driven by the wind of God. So, Amen. I'm going to preach myself happy is what I'm going to do. Next time you think of eating a chicken, remember that they had a family just like you. To which a guy responds, that's why I order a family bucket at KFC. <laughs> no one is left behind. <laughs> I don't know how many of you, uh, my, my family is very health conscious. My, my wife was health conscious on steroids. I mean, she was, took it to another level. And I, I don't know if this will make sense to anybody else in the room, but this is my personal testimony. I could lose an arm in a freak lumberjack chainsaw accident and my wife would be like, probably because you're not drinking enough water. <laughs> is anybody else witness to that one? That's, that is totally, that's the word of the Lord right there. My neighbor knocked on my door at 2.30 a.m. this morning. Can you believe it? 2.30 in the morning. Luckily for him, I was still up playing my drums. My wife just stopped and said, you weren't even listening, were you? I thought to myself, that's a pretty strange way to start off a conversation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this young couple had their pastor over for dinner one evening and um, when it was over and he left, the wife turned to the husband and said, I think he stole our spoon. And a whole year later, they had him back over for dinner and she just couldn't resist asking. She said, I've got to ask you, a year ago when we had you here for dinner, did you steal our spoon? He said, no, I put it in your Bible.
<laughs> That's one of my favorite ones of all time. My goodness. Oh, my. <laughs> Perhaps you've heard that a recent scientific study was done and they found that that uh, women who add a few extra pounds live longer than the men who mention it. <laughs> okay, that's enough. We gotta, we gotta get serious here, we gotta get serious. <laughs> uh, a number of times in the last uh, probably eight weeks I have felt stirred and prompted to share um, an experience, a story of mine. It's not a teaching as much as it is uh, kind of bringing you into a journey and there is a conclusion that hopefully will uh, be a benefit to, to everyone. Uh, it was December of 2020, first week of December. Um, I, I had a, a, an unusual experience. I've had the Lord speak to me twice in the night um, out loud. And um, one of them, I had been seeking the Lord about writing. I, I wasn't a great student. I got good grades, but I was able to kind of fake, fake my way through school. Never learned really how to study or to write well or to talk. I, I took an F in an oral exam once so I wouldn't have to stand in front of anybody and talk. And I wasn't a, a writer or anything, but I had this thing in my heart about writing. And uh, so I prayed and and saw the Lord really for quite, probably six months or so. I, I think the Lord was answering sooner, but I, I listened slow. And uh, so you can't speed up his process, but we sure can slow it down. And uh, in this particular season, I, I actually was awakened by his voice in the middle of the night, awakened by his voice. <clears throat> and all he said was, Isaiah 30, verse eight which is a strange message to get from the Lord. You know, usually you expect a verily, verily or something, you know, something to make it a little bit more authentic. But he just said, uh, he said, Isaiah 30, verse eight. When I got up, I opened Isaiah 30, verse eight, and it says, now go and write. <clears throat> Fairly clear direction <clears throat> of the Lord. And so I, I, I did, I took it upon myself. I started writing in our church bulletins and just little things. See, I knew you don't sit down and write the great American novel when you, you're not accustomed to that. So I, I, I did, I, I responded to that. Another time I was, uh, <clears throat> it, was, it was fairly soon after becoming a pastor at Bethel. My wife and I family moved to Reading to pastor Bethel Church in um, February of 1996. And it was soon afterwards, <clears throat> we were experiencing a, a real powerful outpouring of the Spirit, and uh, so powerful that half the church left. That's how powerful it was. <laughs> and uh, we had a, a great Gideon revival, you know, where uh, all of us pastors like the Gideon story because it comforts us, where God takes the large group and reduces it to the small group, and it's, and it's positive. <laughs> we try hard to believe it's positive, you know. But seriously, I was, I was in that season and I was awakened with this, this word. And it was a Saturday night again. Um, he said, he watches over the watch of those who watch the Lord. <clears throat> if you're familiar with the watch, it's a, a, a watch, not the thing on your arm, but the, the watchman keeps 
awake and alert, looking over a city, looking over the walls of a city, and, and uh, can send warnings to people if there is trouble coming. And, and that phrase just came to me um, in the middle of the night, woke me up with this voice that he watches over the watch of those who watch the Lord. And um, so that, that obviously touched me deeply. I stayed awake, I think, the rest of the night, if I remember right, just pondering what in the world he just said and spoke on it the next morning. So I've had that happen twice, but I don't remember ever hap have experienced what I experienced in December of 2020, first week again, a Saturday night. I was awakened, I was awakened not by a voice, but by a thought that was in my head that I didn't originate. So I don't know how to describe it, but it was like all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're sound asleep and all of a sudden your brain is on hyper mode, uh, thinking and pondering something. And I had, this, I had this phrase going through my mind and it kept me awake for probably a couple of hours just pondering and thinking what in the world is, is the Lord trying to say? And the thought was, was this, a walled city without gates is not entirely safe. A walled city without gates is not entirely safe. And I laid there uh, thinking, I had, I had done, uh, in my earlier years, I had done fairly extensive study uh, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, specifically Nehemiah. I went over that book again and again and again for many, many months. And I was, of course, familiar, as, as most of you would be familiar with, the, the nature of cities in the Old Testament biblical days. The safety or the strength of a city was measured by the height and the depth of the wall around that city and the strength of its gates. The concept, of course, is that enemies would come and try to break into a city or come and try to steal and kill and destroy stuff. And, and so the cities, they would, they would build these walls around the city and they would strengthen gates and it would keep them safe. In fact, you could live inside of a community like that, have war going on outside and your kids can be playing soccer in the streets on the inside because the, the wall just keeps everybody so safe and so separate from, from the chaos on the outside. And uh, I, I remember Jack Hayford doing a, a really a profound series that you probably could still find on YouTube if you were interested, but a profound series on the walls uh, around our own life, that the, that the walls that keep us safe, they're walls of character and virtue, and that when there's a breakdown in one part of the wall, guess where the enemy likes to attack? you can picture this, if, there's a, if these walls in this sanctuary, if those, if those represent the walls of a city and we have a breakdown over here, well, where is the enemy going to try to break in and steal and destroy? It's, it's going to be through the opening. So when we have breakdown in our own moral character and values and ethics, a relational breakdown, those are the areas where the enemy tries to come in and kill, steal, and destroy. Nehemiah in his day, I was, I was pondering this again. I'm trying to take you back to an, ex, uh, 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 an experience and a process because I laid there awake recalling to mind, I remember studying Nehemiah and what he would do is he would take, let's just say over here is where that breach in the wall is. What he would do is he would take soldiers and he would put them in the opening of the wall. So, um, so not, only, um, not only could the enemy not invade, but that part of the wall fought back. And so there was this representation of soldiers in that opening of the wall. So I, I, I was just pondering this, this whole process, a walled city without gates is not entirely safe. 
So just thinking through that, some of the walled cities, their, their walls were so big, they could actually, and so deep, uh, historians tell us that they could actually do like a chariot race on top of the wall. Uh, some cases, there was houses built into the wall. If you remember the story of Rahab, her house was actually in the, in the wall. She let uh, the spies down through the, her window in the wall. And so there was this, this picture. So we've got this, we've got this, uh, uh, this, this, this story that the Lord is trying to build into our lives. And so he introduces the concept to me through this phrase, a walled city without gates is not entirely safe. So I, I started pondering the Nehemiah story. I, I, I remembered a passage out of Isaiah 60 that has uh, Isaiah 60, uh, the two main encounters I've had with the Lord in my life. Uh, you know, we all encounter him daily in various ways, but the two most arresting encounters I had, one was a revelation, and it happened on a Thursday afternoon in May of 1979, and it was where the Lord opened up Isaiah chapter 60 to me, and it's affected every day of my life since then. It was not, a, an, ex, it was not an experience. Uh, in uh, October of 1995, I had an encounter and experience that was uh, overwhelming power pulsating through, through my body, and there's, I, I don't want to get into that today, but uh, the, I would say the two main encounters I've had with the Lord would be those two. And sometimes we want the physical, tangible experience, not realize sometimes he's talking to us on a cognitive level. And, and what you don't want to do is to try to direct him to how he's supposed to minister to you because sometimes he's wanting to tell you something, other times he's wanting to shake something loose or impart something to you. And we're, we're not the ones who get to dictate how he moves. Our, my job is to respond to whatever he's doing. And sometimes what he does in me is so small that if I don't, if I don't give it attention, it won't grow to become what he intended. Most of our big prayers, he gives, we, we pray, let me uh, do a metaphor here. We pray for oak trees, he gives us acorns. And if you don't steward the sprouted acorn, you'll never end up with the oak tree. And oftentimes we measure the answer we've received according to the prayer that we've prayed. And because it falls short, we abort the answer in its miniature stage. It's so easy to say, God, we want revival and read of what has happened in past seasons in church history and measure what we're experiencing with that and not realizing what we have is the acorn. I remember going to Argentina in uh, the late 90s because I'd heard of revival that was happening there. <clears throat> and I went with Randy Clark and I just wanted to see. I got to spend some time with uh, Carlos Anacondia and others in that particular season. I, I, I went there just to see if, it was, if, if what we had was, had any similarity. And I came back with, with this understanding that what they had was a big ripe red apple, juicy, sweet, ready to be devoured. What we had was a small, tart little green apple that had just started forming on the tree. But both were 100% apple. In fact, Carlos Anacondia, a great 
evangelist from Argentina, he told me, he said, this is, referring to what we were experiencing, he said, this is revival. He said, not everybody believes me, but this is revival. You always want to protect what measure God has given to you. Don't open it up for public display for open criticism because you want to, you want to treasure the move that God is doing among you. So back to the story. This encounter I had with the Lord in uh, 1979 was out of Isaiah chapter 60. But here's this verse, verse 18. The last half of the verse says, you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. You will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. So put this in line with the, with the word. I, I don't know, I don't want to say it was a word from the Lord, but it was something that rose up within me, this thought. A walled city without gates is not entirely safe. And so here is this concept found in Isaiah 60. And he says, your walls are called salvation and your gates praise. So that gives me some language for this concept of walls and gates. Your walls are salvation, your gates are praise. Here's the deal. The, the walls, salvation, that's what God does for you. The gate is what you do for him. It's praise. It's the combination of the two. It's the co-laboring role which God had designed into creation from the very beginning. From the very beginning, chapter one of Genesis, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. There, he brought Adam and then Eve and then their descendants into a co-laboring role to see the reality of his world affect and infect the reality of this world. And that was the mandate. Jesus carried it on when he said, pray like this, on earth as it is in heaven. Co-laborers. He can do everything better than we can. Obviously. He could have a healing meeting above all healing meetings. In fact, everyone that I see him in charge of, everyone was healed. So he can do everything better, he can preach better, he can do everything, everything that we are assigned to do, he can do better. But he has chosen to use us in that role instead of him doing it himself. Here's a, here's a question for you. <clears throat> we know, um, we, we see in the scripture where um, young Mary, uh, the to-be mother of Jesus, is visited by uh, Gabriel, the archangel. And Gabriel comes and makes this announcement to her that she's going to give birth to the Christ child. Well, why didn't God do it? I mean, why didn't God show up and tell her? I mean, it seems like a fairly significant moment. You'd think that God himself would show up to give this kind of news. Because everything God made finds its identity, its purpose, its affirmative connection to the Father by doing what they were created and assigned to do. He would never take away from Gabriel the reason for which he was made. He can preach better than us, but he'll never take away our job because our entire identity is in finding our place in Christ and co-laboring with him. He commanded us, he didn't command us to pray for the sick, he commanded us to heal the sick. Matthew 8 or excuse me, Matthew 10, Matthew 10, verse eight. He said, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, cleanse lepers. Yeah, but Bill, we don't heal the sick. I know. I know, it's just not what he said. He said for us to do it. And it's just like him to give us a commandment that we can't do. 
And he's not being cruel because everything he does is out of love. So why would he command us to do something we're incapable of doing? Because he is commanding us into a role that we can only accomplish through dependency on him. What he, see, the difference between law and grace, there's tons of differences, but primary difference in my thinking is that law requires, grace enables. Whenever the Lord moves in grace, he gives the enablement to do the very thing that he commanded. In fact, the renewed mind has an understanding that God enables whatever he commands. In the command is the capability to carry out the command. So here we have this concept of uh, walls being salvation and gates praise. I then, as I'm laying there in the middle of the night, I'm thinking about, uh, thinking about this, and I quickly turned in my thinking to, <clears throat> chapter, uh, to the 21st chapter of Revelation, and it's a, it's a bizarre picture, it's very strange. Revelation has some very strange things. Revelation has some very strange things. I don't know if, if you've ever read the book, but there's some very unusual things in the book of Revelation. Uh, for example, uh, New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven like, like a bride. Okay, what does she look like? A cube. 1500 by 1500 by 1500. Comes down out of heaven like a bride. Got it, got it. I mean, think about this, 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 that's ginormous, this, is perfect structure. Perfect structure. And perfect structure is always to come out of romance. The wineskin metaphor. I hear a lot of teaching, and it's good teaching, and we need it but teaching on the wineskin. The treasure is the wine. The wineskin exists only to accommodate the wine. The wine is the treasure. And the wineskin is whatever you need to do to protect and value and treasure the, the treasure itself, and that's the Spirit of God. So here out of the book of Revelation, we have this picture of the bride, etc. But here's the, here's the interesting picture says in verse 21 of, of chapter 21 of Revelation, it says, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. <clears throat> a massive pearl is a gate. It's a weird looking gate, let's be honest here. We've got this massive pearl, got 12 surrounding this ginormous city and each place of entrance is, is a pearl. And when you see gates in scripture, Psalms 24 uh, describes this to us, says lift up your heads, O ye gates, that the king of glory may come in. So a gate is really for the entrance of presence. And we might say, well, he's already here. That's true, but there's more to come. And that's something that you guys live in practice. I know that you live with that understanding. But just, just a reminder, he's here, but there's more of him that's about to be here. Amen. 
So we've got this walled city and we've got these humongous pearls that are, are the gates. <clears throat> How are pearls formed? Through irritation. Anyone can give God praise when you got the raise at work, when you got the promotion, when you were able to buy your house, when you finally found out you were pregnant after trying for 10 years. And we're supposed to give him praise and celebrate his kindness, his goodness in those moments. That's the great privilege that we have. When your favorite sports team wins, we give him thanks. And thankfully, there's more and more believers in professional sports and they often give testimony of the Lord when they're interviewed after a great victory. And I love that, I love that so much because when I was growing up, it was unheard of. I was a, a still am just a, a, a baseball fan, That's, that was my primary sport. And I, I remember hearing of, and so happy to hear of one Christian on the San Francisco Giants, which was my team, uh, on, their, on their team, a man named Philippe Lou. And the coach was Alvin Dark, and he also was a believer. And it was just so unheard of. Today, I'm told by someone from the NFL that up to 70% of NFL players are born again. It's extraordinary. So what used to be, it was unheard of, and if they were there, they were hidden. They didn't blow their cover, you know. <clears throat> but today, it's just completely different. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful when the Super Bowl is won, somebody will give testimony of the Lord. I, I, I love all of that. But there's something to be said about giving praise to God in loss, in setbacks, in things happening that you didn't expect. Giving him, it, it's, the, the gate is formed in irritation. A non-believer can give God thanks in the middle of victory. You hear it, in fact, you hear it all the time. I just wanna thank God for, and they give thanks. And it's genuine and real, and I'm glad for it. I don't, I don't wanna put it down. But gates are formed when things didn't work, and you gave him praise. Gates are formed when there was great disappointment, great loss, setbacks, things that you couldn't explain to anyone. You fasted, you prayed, you did everything you knew to do, and things turned out different than you expected. I, I, I never, I, I work hard to never build a theology around what didn't happen. I, I, don't, I don't create a theology to explain for disease. I only have a theology for healing. What do you do if they aren't healed? I build a gate. I don't need an explanation. I need a surrendered heart. Yeah, but Bill, we have so many questions. The answers won't help you. Presence will. A gate attracts presence. That's where the healing comes from. In this personal journey that I have had with the Lord for a number of years, I've come to discover that, that if I can't navigate disappointment well, then I can't be trusted with fulfillment of dreams in the measure he wants me to be trusted with. It's navigating disappointment that actually 
um, cre- creates, I don't know if it's a skill, let me just use the word and I can fix it later if I need to. Um, navigate disappointment well, it creates within me this, like, almost like a capacity to steward increase and favor and fulfillment of dreams. I, I get to do that much better because I can be trusted with it. Yeah. If, uh, if, I can't, if I can't navigate uh, loss well, I really can't be trusted with the measure of gain he desires for me. Because I'll be that person that is very devoted to him when things are going well, but I, but I, I lose my devotion, I lose my passion when things aren't going so good. I've learned that if, uh, if I don't handle criticism well, I can't be trusted with the measure of praise he wants to give me. And you say, well, God doesn't want us to receive praise. I, I disagree completely. He's the one who said, well done, good and faithful servant. He's the one who says, I've never seen such faith in all of Israel as I've seen in this woman or in this centurion. He was the one giving honor. This whole concept of bestowing honor upon people was his idea. In fact, it's, it's the very thing that releases the increase of life into our own person, into our own being. Ch- children, honor your parents and the Lord. You live long, long life. Life comes from honor. And so if I, if I can't navigate criticism well, then I really can't be trusted with the measure of praise and affirmation that he would like to bring into my life. You all right? I'm just here to give you good news, honestly. It it gets better by the end, I promise. At least I hope so. And the last one, if I can't handle betrayal. Navigating betrayal is a huge part of life. It's never fun. But we serve someone who sees the end from the beginning. You know, people say, I'm just so, I'm so hurt by the Lord. I'm so disappointed by what he's done. Oh, awesome. Who, who, who are you going to replace him with? You? I'm sure you've never disappointed yourselves. We adjust to him. There's a story of an old man petting a cat. He's in a rocking chair and he's petting the cat from the tail towards the head. Somebody says, you're petting the cat wrong. He said, then let the cat turn around. (laughs) And that's you and me. When God says one thing and we think another, just turn around. Because he's not going to change. You better hope he doesn't change. Because if he changes to what you want, you're in trouble. But that's not you. That's that other church downtown. That's uh, So here we've got this this series of uh, provoking lessons that are actually all a part, they're all a part of his design to make us a people of the presence. Now all of us love to come together and worship, but and this is not, uh, this is an observation in the body of Christ, something that I am a part of. Sometimes we worship the worship experience See, when you worship the worship experience, it's because we value the music, we value being together, we value the atmosphere of the anointing, we value all those things that are all right, but they're all supposed to take us to a person that we become enthralled with. And one of the ways you know whether you're worshiping worship or worshiping Jesus 
is that when it's time to serve, if you're worshiping Jesus, you're ready to serve. If you're worshiping worship, you just want to stay and worship. It's what you see in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, I see the Lord high and lifted up. His train fills the temple. That word for fill, fills the temple, is a word that says that the train of his robe, his, his, his manifest presence, came into the temple, but there's more of the train coming. So in other words, it's filling, but it's going to fill it even more. And the end result in this is God speaks to himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit have this conversation, and they say, who are we going to send? And Isaiah, the worshiper, is standing there going, send me. See, when you worship him, you pick up his heart. And you don't want to miss the opportunity to represent him well. But when we worship the experience, and all of us do in some measure at times, we want to stay right where we are in that place of pleasure and delight. Giving thanks and praise in the middle of conflict and difficulty is just hard, you know, let's be honest. It's a hard thing to do. I remember when my dad died, uh, be 20 years ago this January. He died of a disease we see healed. And I remember we, we were there as a family. We were all up, up in his, his bedroom. And I'll never forget, he breathed his last. And we just, we just all stood around his bed. I, I talked to the whole family. We got his grandkids, kids, spouses, everyone is there. And we just stood around his bed. I said, you know, the mantle on my dad's life in the area of worship was so strong that there's not one single individual that will be able to carry that mantle well. It'll take all of us. And we made a covenant together. And we, we just began to give him thanks and praise. We began to honor the Lord for, this will sound strange to you, but specifically, I honored him for being the healer always the healer. See, I don't want to reduce my offering to the Lord by my experience I, or the lack thereof because he remains the same regardless of what my experience is. I don't want to lower the standard of scripture to the level of my experience either. My entire life is spent trying to raise the level of my experience to the standard of scripture. There's no guilt and shame in the process because that won't get me there. If it would help, <laughs> If guilt and shame helped, how many of you know we'd all be like the Apostle Paul already? You know, we've all tried it enough and just know it just simply doesn't work. It's not effective in changing our lives. But there's something about embracing the moment that you're in. And uh, a little over a year ago, My, uh, my wife, um, I went home to be with the Lord, July 13th, 7.58 p.m. Again, the kids, most of the grandkids were able to be there, different friends and relatives. And there came that moment where it's the last breath. She died again of a disease we see healed. And I've had testimony since then. 
and will continue to have testimony. And here's, here's, this, here's this moment that, um, that is so surreal to be with someone. It's one of the greatest privileges, one of the hardest things, but one of the greatest privileges in life is to walk with someone right to the edge of eternity. There's a glory present, but there's also the pain, the loss, the confusion, the, all, all the stuff, you know. All, all the feelings of, of disappointment. We've seen so many others healed of this very thing. And you could always ask the question, why? You know, why, why didn't that happen for us? And I've never, I don't remember ever asking the question. I never asked the question. He doesn't work for me. I work for him. He owes me nothing. He doesn't owe me anything. He owes me no explanation ever. I'm thankful he gives it to me. He honors my pursuit of wisdom and understanding, knowledge. He honors that. And in the right measure, at the right time, he gives it to me. But it's not something I, I have a right to. It's something that in the, in the journey... He entrusts me with different things. I, I have found that in the measure you're willing and able to live with mystery, in that measure you can be trusted with revelation. If you can embrace mystery as a friend, don't despise it. Celebrate the moment you have in God to not understand and still trust him. It's a divine moment. So much is formed in us in these moments. And so we, well, once again, we're around her bed. I took the last year, pretty much a year of her life. I hardly went anywhere, did anything. I just stayed at home to take care of her. My daughter would come if I was speaking on a particular Sunday. And, but even then, I wasn't involved in very much. The staff covered me so well that I was able to, to just give myself completely to love to care for, to pray for my wife. I had a few things scheduled for the fall because I believed she'd be healed by then. And, and she is healed, but not in the way I had anticipated. She's actually, from what I hear, is doing quite well. <laughs> and if I was able to bring her back, she'd kill me. <laughs> That's a joke. So she, picture you're, you're in this room, you've got your kids, we've wept together, we've prayed together, we've told stories together, we're in this final moment, she breathes her last. And in that moment, we raise hands and we give God praise. We give him thanks for his goodness, his faithfulness. Absolute faithful. You are the healer. You are always the healer. We celebrate your kindness. We give you honor for your faithfulness. And as a family, that's what we, that's what we do. That's what I did it in, immediately, throw my hands in the air and to give him thanks. And, and I want to tell you part of the reason why. I mean, obviously, we, you're supposed to give him thanks in all things. You're supposed to give him praise in all things. It doesn't mean we praise him or give him thanks for evil. 
but we give thanks to the one who is in charge and can use the worst thing for our benefit. And last night we went to we went out to eat, and uh, I I love eating so much. <laughs> I do. I could. I could create my schedule. In fact, I half-jokingly tell people when they invite me to their city, I said, I'm here to eat. <laughs> if you want to have services in between the meals, that's great. Just, you know, count, count me in, but I, I'm, I'm there to eat. And I, I especially like fine dining. My favorite restaurant in the world is uh, French Laundry in uh, Napa, California. I've been there quite a few times, and it's hard to get a seat there, but, uh, but God. But God. And I, I uh, the first, I'll never forget the first time I went, we went with some friends and uh, my wife and I are there. We got a table for four. And I mean, this, 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 the whole, this nine course meal, everything is just choreographed. I mean, it is art, it is beauty, it is science, it is food, it is all the above. And I'm, I'm sitting in this environment. I've never been at this restaurant before. And I remember our first time. So they got nine courses and they bring out this little bowl and I look at it. Now you have to understand, I don't like oysters. I am sorry for all of you seafood people that love oysters. It's just, I don't want to describe what it feels like to me, <laughs> but it's not a positive experience. And caviar, early in our marriage, my wife tricked me. I'd forgiven her, but she, uh, it's one of the, probably the only time she lied to me and laughed. <laughs> she was taking a cooking class and I went to pick her up and she had this spoonful of what she said was like, um, re uh, uh, no, berries, um, like blackberry, blackberries. And so I took a big old bite expecting sweet and it was caviar. And I hated caviar since that moment. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking down in this bowl and there's, there is a big, oh, about size of my thumb, chunk of caviar with two oysters and this sauce. And I look at this, these, these are two of the three things that are in there I do not like at all. <laughs> and um, I turned to my wife and said, honey, I'm paying too much for this meal to not at least try it. I took one bite, no kidding, I took one bite and I said, honey, I want a chili bowl full of this stuff. This is amazing. I don't know how this chef, Thomas Keller, how he did it, but he took two things I hate, mixed it with something that apparently I like, and somehow it got transformed into what may be the greatest thing I've ever eaten. I'm serious, absolutely serious. Every time I go there, I look forward to that one moment where I get oysters and caviar again. It's amazing. We, we have this passage that says, all things work together for good to those who love God, called according to his purpose. See, you got parts of your life that you don't like, but the master chef is going to work it into the recipe. You got things that have happened to you that you are so ashamed of, and yet the master chef is going to take your oysters and your pearls <laughs> And he's going to create this recipe. He's not going to. He's doing it now. He's working it into the recipe of your life where, where you can actually say, I'm so glad I'm eating two things I don't like. I am so glad that he is able to take the very things that shamed me the most 
and is able, able to work them into my story in such a way that I actually can look at it and say, thanks, thank you. Thank you for the parts I don't like because I could see you change them to where they now testify of your goodness and they are so encouraging and strengthening to me. In everything give thanks. It wasn't a suggestion, it's actually a commandment. In everything give thanks. And so we have moments like these where where we, we have challenging situations in all of our lives. Some of you have lost loved ones. Maybe during COVID, you had such a hellish experience. Other things happen, and, and uh, there's not a person in this room that is untouched by disappointment and loss. What I have to be careful to do is to not to redefine him by what I've experienced. I can't, I can't redefine him and now make him out to be someone who's not good, because that's actually a lie, that's a deception. See, if there's lack in any area of our life, I want to say this well. <laughs> Let me put it this way. The lack is never on his end of the equation. And the response is never to go into guilt and shame to find the answer, but it is to own up to the fact that he actually created a covenant that's perfect. He commanded us to pray on earth as it is in heaven because he has full intention of answering that prayer. Yeah, but how come it didn't happen? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not paid to understand, I'm paid to obey. If I can use that terminology. You guys are, are a presence-based ministry, which is, for me, the best there is on the planet. And it's the way we're supposed to do life. There's a story of a dad that brings his child to the disciples. And he's a little guy, but he's demonized to the max. And these demons, these evil spirits in this child are trying to kill him. And the dad is so desperate that he brings his son to the disciples. And the disciples, you have to uh, remember, remind yourself of the fact they are the most skilled people in the realm of deliverance of anyone to live up to that point except for Jesus himself. They've been sent to cities, they've been empowered by Jesus, they've been sent to their hometowns, they've gone there two by two, they come back with glowing reports of demons that leave people's bodies and healings and great miracles. They've worked with Jesus, they've been partners, uh, mentored if you will, by the great deliverer himself. And so these, these guys, if, if there were experts in that field, they, they were it. And so dad, this dad brings the child to the disciples and they do everything they've done before and they couldn't get the kid free. I have a horrible memory just in my own, uh, at the beginning of this revival, I was down in Southern California and this mom brought her son who was demonized just like the, the boy in, uh, in Mark chapter nine, just like that kid, so demonized. And I did everything I knew to do, things I've done before to see someone set free. Couldn't get the kid free. I'll never forget the look in the mom's face when he wasn't free and I had done everything I knew to do. So the disciples in this story tried everything and what happens in church life is we tend to create a theology around what didn't happen to explain it. 
then we feel better about ourselves. I'm not in this to feel good about myself. I'm in this to be transformed. So here we've got this, this moment where the disciples couldn't help the child and then the dad looks up and he sees Jesus coming so he brings the son to Jesus. You know the story, Jesus brings this swift and thorough deliverance to the child is completely set free. The disciples are stunned. And they, they, uh, they come to Jesus and they take him aside and they say, uh, how come we couldn't do it? Remember their history now. They've, they've got experience where it's worked. How come we couldn't do it? And, and Jesus said, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. But if you read the story, Jesus neither prayed nor fasted in that moment. See, we tend to think of praying and fasting for a problem. Jesus prayed and fasted into a lifestyle. So that he could actually be instant in season and out. And so here's this moment of crisis. He didn't need to go away and pray. He didn't need to go away and fast because he'd already prayed into a realm of anointing that made, turn the hot water on, it's instantly there. There's no waiting for it to warm up. This kind of only comes out with prayer and fasting. So most, most of us, when we, when we read that story, we come away with, with saying, well, sometimes we just, you know, prayer and fasting is what we need to do. And it's absolutely a proper conclusion to that beautiful story. The prayer and fasting help, help to bring us into the measure of breakthrough that we all ache for. And while I think that's a, a decent conclusion, for me, the actual lesson of the story is quite a bit different. See, if that story were to happen right now today in church history, the church would create a theology around a child being tormented and we would say something like, well, God has perfect timing for everything. We just, we just sweep unanswered prayers under that carpet and just say, well, God knows what he's doing. And we tend, tend to take the absence of a breakthrough and put it on him. But the disciples, thankfully, we're not satisfied with an unanswered prayer. And so they came to Jesus afterwards and they said, you got the demon out, how come we couldn't? Jesus told them this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. What's the secret lesson of this great story? That when the disciples did not get a breakthrough, they took Jesus aside. They were so accustomed to breakthrough that when it didn't happen, they were surprised. May the day come where we don't get a breakthrough and we're shocked. I pray that that day comes for all of us, that we're shocked. And we take that moment and we, take, we step aside to find out why. Instead of creating a theology around what didn't happen, we find out why and make the changes that are necessary. The huge part of this lesson for me is that when there's loss, when there's disappointment, there's, you know, if I can take myself back 15 months or so, 16 months ago with the loss of my wife. 
in those moments, you've got pain, you've got disappointment, you've got the frustration of unanswered prayers, at least seemingly. You've got maybe confusion. How could this happen? Um, you've got uh, maybe guilt, shame. I didn't have any in this. I did with my dad because I, I should have fasted and cried out differently. But with Benny, I, I did. I did. I did everything I knew to do. So sure, I'm sure there's more I could have done. But the point is, I did everything I knew to do, and set aside a year just to, just to seek the Lord and to minister to her. So I didn't have the guilt, but I, I've got the confusion. I've got the pain. I've got the loss, I've got the questions, I've got all the stuff. And what I learned to do in the situation with my dad's loss is I take all these elements and I, I, don't, I don't know if you can imagine, I've, I've got a fire in me. And I take all these elements as though they are incense, they are flavors to add to the fire, if you will. My affection for God burns and so I bring in the disappointment, I bring in the loss, I bring in the confusion and I hold it really close to me because it creates a context in which I give God an offering of praise that I will never have the chance to give him in eternity. See, it's a gift, it's a priceless gift. I've got one crack at this one. I've only got one chance to give him this offering. If I wait a month, it's still useful, but there's nothing like the moment of greatest pain. There's nothing like the moment of greatest disappointment to capture your moment and say, I will bless the Lord. I'm not looking to feel good about it. I'm looking to obey. My goal is not strength. My goal is faithfulness. I'm not trying to be strong. I'm trying to be faithful. I've got a moment. I don't think it was a moment created by God because sickness was involved. I don't believe he was involved in the sickness any more than I believe he was involved in sin. Sickness is to my body what sin is to my soul. I think I first heard that from your dad. Thank you, Benny. So you grab your moment. You've got this moment of loss, of disappointment, of all the stuff that all of us face. It, it could be, you know, a, a, a break in a relationship it could be any number of things. I'm, I'm only using mine as an example because all of us have stuff where this applies. But we capture our moments and we basically say, God, I'm not going to try to redefine you, your nature, your covenant, your heart for me by what I've experienced or what I didn't experience. I don't understand it, but I do trust you. I do trust you and I will give you an offering. I'm gonna grab my moment as painful as this is, I'm gonna grab my moment and I'm gonna celebrate your goodness. The Bible says to rejoice with trembling. So it's not just hanging my head giving thanks, it's actually choosing a pathway of joy to celebrate his kindness and his goodness. I owe it to him to do that. And the feelings of loss, of pain, the frustration, all this stuff, you don't get that in heaven, thankfully. Thankfully we get to shed that and leave all of that behind. But what that means to me is it creates a context in which it makes this offering of thanks and praise, it makes it a priceless gift. And I'm gonna give him something here that I will never have a chance to give him in heaven. I grab my moment. 
a walled city without gates. You're saved. You've got the walled city. But the gates of praise are your responsibility. And they are formed in giving him honor in your most difficult moments. And it's all about the presence. Why don't you stand? You made it. Congratulations. Just in the, the law of averages, um, we would have people in this room who have recently suffered loss, and there's been so much pain involved. And I, I, I get it. I get it. I've, I've got, I actually have uh, a couple of the hardest situations going on in my life that I've ever had in my life going on right now. And learning how to navigate my own heart, the attitude of my heart, the focus of my heart, and to be able to give him thanks and praise in the middle of what is so, so painful. It's, you know, what the enemy tries to do is he tries to get me to not look to him, but instead look to either the problem or to me, which is often the problem. <laughs> you know, it's Peter on the water. He looks at Jesus walking on the water, and as long as he watches Jesus, he walks on the water. As long as he looks at the waves, he sinks. And, and I can say that's absolutely true. I have sunk so many times because I was overwhelmed by the size of the problem, the conflict, the challenge. But one of the ways we get out of that not just in, in a given moment that you're in, but as a lifestyle, is that we learn to respond with thanksgiving and praise no matter what's going on. People will say, well, you're just not being realistic. Well, you're being realistic, but just from heaven's reality, not from earth's reality. It's a superior real, realism. It's, it's something that's so far greater than anything. No, no circumstance has the authority to redefine you. No, no circumstance has the authority to redefine your walk with Christ. And so I'm going to ask you to do this. We're going to take just a moment, then I'm going to turn it back over. I would like for you to take your hands, put it in front of you, and I'll, I want you to just figuratively just bring before him the biggest challenge that you're facing right now. Just somehow put it in your hands, see it, see it in your hands. Now I want you to take those hands and I want you to lift them before him, and I want you to give him thanks that he's in charge, that he's the master. He's able to take the ugly, the good, the bad, the ugly, and work them into the most beautiful recipe where he gets glory and you receive strength. Now I'm gonna ask you out loud, you don't have to yell, but out loud, I want you to give him thanks. You don't have to mention a situation for privacy of, uh, your privacy of people around you but in some figurative way, if you would just offer up thanks and praise to God. God, you're big enough to solve this one. I am not, I trust you. I give this to you and I celebrate your kindness. I celebrate your faithfulness. I celebrate who you are. You are the God of perfect love, the God of perfect wonder. 
you are good, you're always good. You never change from being that wonderful and perfect Father. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you work all things together for good. That you're working right now, even when we don't see it, you're working. Right now, even when we can't perceive what you're saying anymore, we're in the middle of confusion. Even in that, we just give you praise. Now I want you just to lift your voices. Let's just give him honor, let's give him praise. Declare his greatness, declare his greatness. We declare the name Jesus, Lord of all, King of all, Master of all. Wonderful Jesus, wonderful Jesus. <clears throat> wonderful Jesus. Wonderful God. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. David would speak to his own soul. He would say, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. It was like he would take himself by the lapels and says, this is what you're going to be doing. You're going to honor the Lord. You're gonna celebrate his goodness, his faithfulness. Lift your voices just a little bit stronger, a little bit bolder, declare his greatness. We honor you, Jesus. We celebrate you, God. Perfectly faithful, perfectly true. Take just a moment longer, if you would. We can take maybe 30 seconds more. Just declare his kindness. When you do it, surrender things, give him stuff. He said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He'll make an exchange with you. The weighty stuff for the light stuff, the confusing stuff for the things that are simple and true. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Put a hand on the shoulder of someone next to you and just pray. God, let this be a season of a great breakthrough for them. Great, great breakthrough. We, de we declare the breakthrough of the Lord over every single individual, that this would be the year of increase. This would be the year of breakthrough. In Jesus' mighty, mighty name. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can like and subscribe to help us continue to reach people around the world with the gospel. Give today at jesusimage.tv forward slash give. You can also join us in person or online every Sunday at Jesus Image Church. For more information on Jesus Image, events, Jesus School, and resources, visit jesusimage.tv.